Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 10, English Reconquest. Last time we got to the end of Alfred, which brings us to the 10th century, which is surely one of the most forgotten periods of English history, though I confess I'm not sure how you measure these things. But it's odd, because this is the time when England is finally formed. And another thing, why is it? that Edward the Elder, the king we're going to talk about today, doesn't even warrant a number. He quite clearly should be Edward I. So what's that all about then? I have sought answers. There are effectively none, though there are plenty of theories around. But before we launch into all the monarchs and all the death and destruction, blood and sweat and all that, why don't we just settle back and think a bit about what's been going on in all the conquered lands the region that would become known as Danelaw. We have the same question as we had all those centuries ago when the Angles, Saxons and Jutes came to visit. What was the depth of the settlement of the Vikings? Are we talking about genocide, mass replacement of the Anglo-Saxons? Or merely a change in culture from top down? And in fact, was there a new culture, a sort of Anglo-Scandinavian society? In trying to answer the question, we have all the same tiresome old problems we had last time round. The types of data to be used are very similar. Place name evidence, burials, settlement archaeology, genetics. And the type of limitations are exactly the same, such as culture doesn't define ethnicity, meaning that an angle might well adopt the dress and habits of his or her Scandinavian bosses, and yet remain, of course, an angle. And genetic analyses are pretty difficult to fit into a chronology. You might identify different DNA groups, but you don't know when they happened. However, what becomes reasonably clear is the complexity of the mix and all that. By and large, 
Danes were the largest single grouping within the Viking invasions, but heterogeneous, they are not. So, for example, do you remember the dramatic burials at the ancient home of Mercia at Repton? There were three high-status burials slap-bang in the middle of the new Viking enclosure, in addition to the maybe-it's-Ivar complex. Two appear to be Danish. One appears to be Swedish. Now, I don't think I've mentioned a Swede in England once, so you take my point. We're talking about Norwegians, Danes, Swedes, and who knows if there aren't a few Frisian and Franks mixed in as well. And what about the Irish-Norwegian types? It's complicated, is all I'm saying. Secondly, then, what also becomes clear is that, partly because of that, what we have is something new. It's not Denmark transported over the North Sea to England. There is a new Anglo-Scandi society forming. Clean lines, wood-laminated flooring, large, flat-pack furniture stores, that sort of thing. Politically, there are also similarities with the Anglo-Saxon settlement, i.e. its chaos. Like the formation of planets from cosmic clouds of dust, we saw the chaos of the original settlement begin slowly to form into something more coherent, onto which we imposed the name Heptarchy. The Anglo-Scandinavians are going to have much less time to allow that to happen, because the West Saxons are coming to get them. But there is something of the original cosmic chaos. It might be that there is some order in there we just can't see, we just don't have the information, just a bunch of names for the most part. Coins are issued, but with a vast number of rulers' names, which is interesting, so clearly not terribly coherent or unified politically, but on the other hand, the business of issuing coins does go on, though this doesn't appear to be the case actually in East Anglia. The tempting conclusion is that political control was as in early Anglo-Saxon days, very loose, that individual war leaders, just like those original Anglo-Saxon war bands, settled down with the land and lordships they'd won and started to settle. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle puts it like this when Haftan finally gave up trying to beat up Wessex and went home to Northumbria. Haftan, it says, shared out the land of the Northumbrians and they proceeded to plough and support themselves. It's hardly definitive, but it sounds like a sharing out of a bunch of land between those who'd taken part. Having said that, some of the fault lines of the old Anglo-Saxon structure appears to be adopted, so broadly what you end up with looks a bit like this, accepting that it's a description which probably gives far too much coherence for what was really going on on the ground. The Anglo-Scandinavian part of the country then, what becomes known as Dane law, is broadly speaking divided into three regions. The oldest and furthest north is the Kingdom of Northumbria, centred on Yorfawick and therefore sometimes called the Kingdom of York, and York itself becomes known as Jorvik. And so there still seems to be that basic separation of Southumbrians and Northumbrians that Bede talked about. However, don't forget Bernicia, the ancient kingdom centred on Bamborough, which is still Anglo-Saxon, would you believe? Then you have East Anglia, which also appears to have a king, Hjorik after Guthrum, we think, but for the most part, the kings of East Anglia are very obscure, even if it had any coherent single political leadership. And this is the problem, actually, of accepting the previous Anglo-Saxon setup as the template. Because where East Anglia ends and the third broad area starts, 
is anyone's guess, which is the Midlands. So in the Midlands, there are a number of independent settlements in the southern and southeastern Midlands, including what became called the Five Boroughs, which centre on five towns. These five towns are Leicester, Lincoln, Nottingham, Stamford and Derby. So in summary, it's a bit of a mess. It really needs a map, so go and look at the resources on the website where a map is duly provided. Although again, the map probably gives far too much coherence to what was actually going on. And my message is that it's highly likely that a real political map would look a lot more complicated, a shifting pattern of lordships and allegiances. When it comes to thinking about where the Anglo-Scandinavians settled, the biggest set of data is in place names. And of course, place names are far and away the most fun, but maybe that's just me. When it comes to using place name evidence, there are some complications here which need to be dealt with. One particular one is that estates in Anglo-Saxon England get split up and very fragmented in the later 10th century, and this muddies the waters because many of those estates probably get renamed. Another is the timing of the reconquest we're about to hear about later in this episode. So the earlier that happens, the less likely it is that the old Scandinavian name will have been embedded and survive. So the southern areas of Danelaw, for example, the north home counties like Hertfordshire, you might call them, are recaptured much earlier than other areas. And surprise, surprise, there are very few Scandinavian place names there. I can't remember how much we went into it earlier, but there are distinctive suffixes in Old English and Scandinavian which give an idea of the kind of settlement. So, for example, tun, on the end of a word, is an Old English generic suffix which means settlement. The Scandinavian equivalent are words which end in b, by, by, which also means a settlement, and usually a primary settlement and you will find place names all over the north of England which end in BY. Kirby Stephen, just for example. Another very common suffix is Thorpe, from a Scandinavian word meaning a secondary outlying settlement. So, fine, the town of Grimesthorpe, for example. So these place names give you an indication of the breadth of Scandinavian settlement. And what you see is a pretty dense occurrence of these kind of place names in the East Midlands, Eastern England, and the northeast. You get a very significant density in East Anglia and a reasonable level in the northwest. These names give a pretty clear indication that the level of migration was at least significant. One interesting wrinkle is something called the Grimston hybrid. What happens there is that you get Old English and Scandinavian words combining together. The theory is that these give a glimpse of the timing of the Scandinavian settlement. So, the hybrid place names indicate the earlier settlement, where the higher-grade agricultural land is taken over by the invaders. Where place names are more purely Scandinavian, the theory runs, these are due to later expansion. So, place names tell us that something significant certainly went on. When combined with the rather troublesome DNA data, this is very much confirmed. It even appears that in some places the impact of the Scandinavian invasion may have had more impact than the original Anglo-Saxon one but they don't really tell us much about the society that emerged, whether it was a kind of genocide or assimilation. On that front, the similarities between the original Anglo-Saxon migrations and this new phase seem very striking. Firstly, the difficulty of interpreting the data, which often seems to conflict. 
But what is clear is that there is a reassertion of pagan burial practices in some places, though equally there are far fewer obviously Scandinavian burial sites than there are Anglo-Saxon. There is a combination of Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian styles in artefacts, so in jewellery and decorative motifs. And this suggests that the new society was not just the imposition of a new society on the old or an imposition of a new aristocracy with its own culture. It speaks of a process of assimilation. Where the Anglo-Saxon population, for sure, took up many of the practices and styles of their new masters, but the new landowners also adopted Anglo-Saxon culture as well to create something new, Anglo-Scandinavian. I came across an example of one of these in the aforementioned Kirby Stephen, after recovering from the first half of the coast-to-coast walk with my son. In the church, we found a Loki stone. It's a carving of the devil, using the form of Loki, the Scandinavian god, as the devil. In survivals like this, there's evidence of the existing Christian population representing their culture in a form that the new arrivals would understand. The long and short of all of this is that it's impossible to be hard and fast, but the evidence points pretty clearly to assimilation, not genocide, and that the migration was significant in number and certainly shows DNA links with Scandinavia. And that in the north and east, there was the creation of a distinctive Anglo-Scandinavian culture that gets referred to as the Dane law. Oakley dokley, so let us return to politics and to the new King of Wessex, Alfred's eldest son, Edward. Edward's experience would have been forged in an atmosphere of impending disaster and the threat of Wessex's extinction. And this does appear to have formed his thinking because his reign and those of his sons Athelstan and Edmund were dominated by the reclamation of the older English kingdoms and the creation of the new political institution of England. Edward's reign did not start easily, though. To explain why, I need to take you back a bit. You'll remember that in 871, Wessex was on the brink of disaster under constant assault from the great heathen army. On the death of Ethelred, the Witan, or Council of Leading Men, had two choices. They could make the king's three-year-old son, Athelwold, king, or they could make 22-year-old Alfred, brother to the king, victor of the Battle of Ashdown, king instead. Hmm, tricky. So, of course, they chose Alfred, and indeed, as we've seen, the concept of primogeniture is not part of Anglo-Saxon government. Any royal prince had a perfectly legitimate claim, and Alfred was the better choice. So, obviously, this was a good decision at the time, and the rest of Alfred's reign is history. But it came back to bite them on the Anglo-Saxon bum in 899. Alfred had five children. The eldest was Athelflad, who was married to Alderman Athelred, of Mercia, of whom we'll hear more later. And then there was Edward, who was now fully expected to be king. On the death of Alfred, Edward was declared king, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but Athelwold was not happy with the idea. And there's no doubt he had a reasonable claim. He'd been passed over once when he was three, he did not want to be passed over again. And so Athelwold set up his standard at a place called Wimborne. Wimborne is very close to the south coast in Dorset, Its relevance was not only that it is in the Wessex heartland, but also that this was the site of the death and burial of his father, King Ethelred. Ethelred hoped that thanes and men would support his claim, and clearly had a group that supported him, but unfortunately for him, not enough more came forward. Edward occupied the nearby ancient Iron Age fort, Badbury Rings, and sat and waited. 
Athelwold was forced to recognise the reality of the situation. He knew he didn't have the grunt to take Edward on, and so he legged it. Thus far, thus reasonable, really. You can't really blame Athelwold for having a go, in a way that we've seen throughout Wessex's history. Edward was not consecrated king until the 8th of June next year, and the affair hardly even registers as a rebellion. But Athelwold didn't stop there, and was to earn himself the bitterly bestowed name of King of the Pagans, because he fled to the Danes of Northumbria, and he set up shop with them. According to one version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he was accepted by them as their king, but more likely this is accepted as a king, since the Danes were given to give him the title of king to all sorts of people. So here was a member of the royal house of the West Saxons teaming up with the archenemy. I leave you to imagine how this would have gone down with the West Saxons. Two years later, in 901, Athelwold was back with a fleet of his Danish friends and he appeared in Essex, just as the Danes had in their last campaign. We know nothing else of what he did that year, but in the following year, in 902, he managed to persuade Eorik, Guthrum's successor as King of East Anglia, to undertake a raid into northern Wessex. There, they found exactly as Haston had done ten years ago, that Alfred's birth system stopped them from taking towns, but they were able to ravage away in the traditional Viking fashion, in the countryside at least. Edward now showed that he understood that the relationship between Dane and English had changed in another way. For rather than simply react to the raid and seek to throw them out, he organised his own attack deep into East Anglian territory. Because now the Danes had their own property to defend. Now the West Saxons didn't have to sit back and watch while the Danes took the initiative all the time. And indeed, the Danes were forced to react and turned to defend their homes. Edward therefore seemed content with what he'd achieved and ordered the retreat back to Wessex. But the third of Kent disobeyed, eager to revenge the beatings they'd taken before at the hands of the Danes. At the resulting Battle of the Home, the Danes defeated the Kentishmen. But they paid a heavy price, with the death of their king Eorik and the death of Athelwold himself. So despite a nominal victory, the real winner was without doubt Edward, who is now undisputed king of Wessex. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We know very little of the next seven years, which led to the launch in 909 of the campaign to bring the Danish kingdoms of England into the West Saxon hands. It might be worth a quick recap of the state of play and the issues that drove Edward's strategy. So, broadly, England was split in two, though the northern half was Danish with a line from London to the Mersey, splitting Old Mercia in two. The southern part, including London, belongs to the Anglo-Saxons. One of the stories of the Anglo-Saxon reconquest is that of Athelflad, daughter of Alfred the Great. 
of the delicate balance between Wessex and Mercia and the vision Edward had inherited from his father of a united land of the English. As we've heard previously, the last king of Mercia, Churlwolf, had died maybe in 881, and he'd been succeeded by Athelred, a man of whose background we know very little, but who had always been a good ally to Alfred. Somewhere around 890, Alfred demonstrated his confidence in Ethelred by giving him his daughter Athelflaed in marriage. We don't know her age, but it's probable that she was around 20 years old, and very probable that her new husband must have been considerably older than she was. The standard story, as reflected in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is all about Edward, known to history as Edward the Elder. Given that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was written for the glorification of the West Saxons, their story is unsurprisingly one of Edward's glory and leadership, with Mercian support and subservience. This is a story that stuck, but which in more recent years has begun to be unpicked rather more. And a new story begins to emerge, a story of a proud kingdom in Mercia that aspired to retain its independence and proud history of a great leader in Athelflaed who may well have come to share their aspiration in favour of her father's vision of a united England, and who certainly felt no need to be her brother's servant, and of a powerful, dominant Wessex determined to lead the new England, which had no role for a king of Mercia in its mind. So we're helped in this story by the survival of a chronicle called the Mercian Register, otherwise known as the Annals of Athelflaed. Mostly this chronicle has been destroyed, but fragments of it survived and were incorporated into versions of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. Almost uniquely, then, these fragments take a Mercian view, rather than a West Saxon view. Athelred's attitude is difficult to fathom, since there's so little information. There is the odd reference to him as king of the Mercians, but generally he is referred only to with the title of Lord of the Mercians. Despite his affinity with Alfred and then Edward, we do know that he was careful to rule in Mercia at the head of a Mercian court in Witten, that under his leadership and that of his wife, the city of Gloucester was redeveloped and rebuilt as a kind of new Mercian capital. In particular, they built a new abbey church, which was a major centre of their patronage. Now this could, of course, all be the normal business of a lord and his people, but the likelihood is that Ethelred fostered and at least pandered to a degree to the independent pride of his Mercian thanes. But at some point in the early 990s, maybe 902, Athelred fell ill, and effective leadership fell to his wife, Athelflaed. Athelflaed's leadership after 902 and up to the death of her husband in 911 is quite remarkable. There's really almost no template for a woman as head of state in Anglo-Saxon England. And yet, that is what in practice Athelflaed became, as the Lady of the Mercians, as he later became known. Now, maybe the convenient fiction at this point was that she ruled in her husband's name, but still, her leadership was accepted all over Mercia. So, as Edward and his sister Athelflaed faced their task in 909, they would have probably faced it with some confidence. There's no doubt that the energy and dynamism of the Viking invasions had dissipated somewhat as the Vikings turned to settle. There was very limited unity of purpose between the different Danish kingdoms, although on occasions they would support each other and they would work together. 
Northumbria was the fulcrum. It was there that the oldest and richest Danish kingdoms existed, and until Northumbria was English, the conquest would never be complete. Finally, they would have reflected on the success of Alfred's burial system, the use of the burrs to defend and consolidate land regained. But they would also begin to see the potential of the burrs as a place from which to launch invasion as an offensive measure. The early focus in these years of the reconquest of the Danelaw was on the extension of the system of burrs Alfred had started into Mercia. So, for example, Athelflaed built a burr at a lost location called Bremersburr, and also at Worcester early in the 900s. Edward and Athelflaed during this time also appeared to have been pursuing a much more subtle road to reconquest rather than the all-out war that would follow. So there are references to peace agreements that Edward makes with the Danes, a suggestion that Edward encouraged his Danes to buy land in the Danelaw, maybe as a precursor to a more aggressive approach, a way of gaining local influence behind the line. In 909, hostilities opened, with a major Anglo-Saxon raid into Northumbria. The objective doesn't appear at this point to have been conquest and settlement, more to destabilise make the Danish lords question the power of their king to protect them. And one of the objectives appears to have been to take the bones of the revered royal saint St Oswald from the monastery at Bardney in Lincolnshire, in which objective the raid was successful. And with great ceremony it was to Gloucester that Athelflaed took the bones, and in her new minster that they were laid, which suggests that maybe it was Athelflaed who had ordered or led this raid. The following year, Edward and Athelflaed may well have been planning an invasion by sea, since we know that Edward was in Kent, collecting a fleet from all parts of Wessex. But they were forestalled. The Danish kings of Northumbria combined forces and attacked into Mercia, using ships to transport their army into the heart of Mercia via the River Severn. They expected a slow response from the English as normal, given that Edward was also in Kent and his army on board ship. But Edward moved quickly, and his army first cut off the Danish invaders from their fleet and forced them to retreat northwards, heading for home. And now it was Athelflaed and the Mercians who appear to have made the decisive intervention, because on the 5th of August the Danes were caught and brought to battle at Tettenhall in the West Midlands by the Mercian and Wessex's army, at a place described as Weddensfield, Woden's Field. At the resulting battle, three Danish kings were cut down and numerous leaders killed. Strategically, Athelred had achieved an utterly crucial victory. Danish Northumbria had been the centre, the leader of Danelaw. Northumbria never fully recovered from this defeat, while the Danish kingdoms of Northumbria would survive for many more years, as an offensive supporter of the East Anglian Danes and Danes of the Five Counties, Northumbria was largely a spent force. The southern Danish kingdoms were on their own. Then, in 911, Athelrad, Lord of the Mercians, finally gave up the ghost. Now, there can be little doubt about what would be expected to happen now. Whatever the realities of the situation, Athelflaed's rule surely depended on the legal and traditional basis of her husband's authority. With that taken away, no woman would be able to maintain her position. With no clear succession, this was surely Edward's moment. 
Athol Fladden, Athelred's only child, was a girl, Elfwyn. So what happened next is in its way as remarkable as any event in English history, because it was Athelflad that became the undisputed leader of Mercia. Now it's complicated. You could look at this in more than one way. You could say that this was a family deal, the House of Wessex carving things up, no need to rock the boat. Or you could argue that there has to be something going on here, the charisma of Athelflad, the leader who had proved her worth, who had called her thanes and aldermen in her letters and communications, her friends who had proved her piety and her right to rule. And in any case, she was the only thing standing between Mercia and effective extinction as an independent political force at the hand of the West Saxons. Either way, the result was extraordinary. Athelflad, from this point, is referred to as Mirkna Hlafdiga, the Lady of the Mercians, just as Athelrad had been Mirkna Hlafoda, Lord of the Mercians. Whatever the reasons for Athelflad's triumph, there does seem to have been some kind of deal involved, because Edward at this point gained direct control over the cities of Oxford and London. And although a heavy price for Mercia to pay was maybe not an unreasonable price for Athelflad and the Eldermen and Thanes of Mercia to pay for their independence. 912 to 917, then, is a story of advance and the slow garrotting of the southern Danish kingdoms. Whatever Athelflad's attitude towards her brother, there's ample evidence that they cooperated very closely. The years saw a combination of raiding and burr building, creating an iron girdle to squeeze the life from the Danish kingdoms. In 912, Athelflad had built burrs to prevent crossings of the River Severn again. At the same time, Edward constructed two at Hartford, to protect southern Mercia, and one at Witham in Essex. In 913, Athelflad fortified Tamworth and Stafford to create obstacles for Danish raiding parties into Wessex as well as Mercia. And then together, Wessex and Mercia created a chain in 913 and 14, when Edward had two burrs built at Buckingham and Athelflad one at Warwick. With burrs at Edisborough, Wirral, Runcorn and Cherbury, Athelflad consolidated her grip in the north of Mercia, while Edward built in Bedford and protected Essex from seaborne attack with a burr at Malden. While Edward slowly built the pressure on East Anglia, Athelflad was also leading Mercian armies into the Danelaw, and actually against the Welsh. She was fortifying her existing Mercian towns, Hereford and Gloucester in particular. Together, Athelflad and Edward's advance follows a very clear pattern of fortress building to both form a base for operations and to further secure Wessex and Mercia from attack. Athelflad was also occupied elsewhere, so in 916 she launched a raid into the Welsh kingdom of Brycheniog in outraged response for the murder of a Mercian abbot, capturing the wife of the Welsh king in the process. If you were being super critical, though, in a way, you might say that Athelflad and Edward's progress had been rather slow. After five years of fighting, all they had to show for it was a few fortresses and the one Danish lordship of Bedfordshire. But 917 was to be decisive. The campaign started with Edward's attack on a powerful Danish lordship in the Midlands in the Five Boroughs by taking the town of Toaster and building a fortress further into Danish territory at a place called Wiginamir. The war at this point became general. The Danish armies of Northampton and Leicester combined and attacked Toaster without success. 
and then expended their frustration on pointless raiding to the south of the town. They then tried again, attacking the English fortress at Wiginamir, but again without success. Meanwhile, the Danish armies of Huntingdon and East Anglia invaded Bedfordshire and built a fortress at a place called Tempsford for their forward operations. They then attacked Bedford itself, but were driven off by the English garrison. The English then attacked the new Danish fortress at Thamesford with complete success, killing all the defenders and, crucially, the Danish king of East Anglia. But it was Athelflaed who made the first big breakthrough, and it came at one of the five boroughs. Though, to be honest, Athelflaed's success will have owed much also to Edward's activity further south. The centre of one of the Danish five boroughs was at Derby, and quite probably the Vikings' main military centre there was at an old Roman fort of Dovencio. So while the town was denuded of defenders, away helping the war effort against Edward further south, Athelflaed sent an army to attack Derby, and the attack was a complete success. Though an echo of sadness and regret reaches us from Athelflaed through the annals of Athelflaed. It notes that she lost, quote, four of her thanes who were dear to her. I may be reading too much into it, but together with the way she called her thanes her friends, the regret at the loss of her leaders in the battle at Derby, there's an echo of the charisma that must have been part of her extraordinary success. With increasing desperation, the Danes made one more attack by land and sea against the English fortress at Morden in Essex. Their defeat there signalled the end of their offensive operations and attempt to break out of the ring of English fortresses. In the early autumn, Thurfirth, the Danish Earl of Northampton, had had enough and he submitted to Edward as his lord. And so another lordship was absorbed to be swiftly followed by the fall of Huntingdon. The pack of cards was now falling. Edward captured Colchester in the south of Essex and built a fortress there in preparation for an assault on the lordship of Cambridge and the kingdom of East Anglia itself. But the Danes were finished and both of these lordships and kingdoms submitted to Edward's authority before the end of the year. So by the start of 918, the tide of the war had turned decisively in favour of the English. South of the Humber, four boroughs remained to the Danes, Leicester, Stamford, Nottingham and Lincoln. Leicester was the first to go without any fighting when they submitted to Athelflaed. Edward moved against Stamford and again the Danes submitted without a fight. There may have been one further triumph for Athelflaed. There is a story from a later and slightly dodgy source, but corroborated to an extent by the annals of Athelflaed, that in this year, Athelflaed's Mercians also fought against the Viking king in Northumbria, Ragnald. I probably need to explain this a bit, so let's back up a small step. While all of this was going on, Northumbria herself was undergoing major changes. Since the early years of the century, it seems that Scandinavian settlers from Ireland were arriving in some numbers on the northwestern coast of England within Northumbria and causing major issues for the Danish kingdom. At the same time, the kingdom of Strathclyde further north probably took back the land between the Solway Firth and Penrith, which had always been part of the English Northumbrian kingdom. The threat from the Norse raiders intensified with the arrival of a Viking called Ragnall. Ragnald was one of the most powerful Norse rulers of the period as overlord of the Irish sea area from the Hebrides, Isle of Man and Waterford. 
Cast your minds back a few episodes to the leader of the great heathen army, Ivor the Boneless. After taking part in the English invasions of the great heathen army, Ivor had gone to Ireland, and before he died had founded the U-Imar dynasty of which Ragnall was part. Ivor's grandson, in fact. Ragnald first appears in England, 913 or 15, not quite sure, attacking the English kingdom of Bernicia, which is the surviving English kingdom in the far northeast, centred on the great fortress at Bamborough. Bamborough was ruled by a man called Eildred, who held the title of High Reeve. The attack was not a surprise to Eildred, who was joined by the Scottish king, Constantine. It is to this battle that Athelflaed probably sent an army as part of an agreement with the Scots and Picts, as well as with Bamborough. But despite her help, it was Ragnall that won the day at Cor Bridge. So, a defeat. But that very defeat opened a great opportunity for Athelflaed, because York asked for her help and her protection, and agreed to submit to her to defend themselves against Ragnall. Now this was an enormous opportunity, a success that would rival anything her brother achieved in East Anglia and the Midlands. But sadly, Athelflaed was out of time, because on June 12th, 918, she died at the ancient capital of Mercia, Tamworth. Her death again brings up the central question, were Athelflaed and Edward working together to the greater glory of Wessex? Or had Athelflaed effectively thrown in her lot with Mercia and sought, now from beyond the grave, to keep Mercian independence alive? The bald facts are that for a few short months in 918 it appears that Alfwyn, her daughter, assumed the leadership of Mercia. Alfwyn was Athelflaed and Athelred's only child, a woman of probably about 30 at the time. And it wasn't until 919 that Edward was forcibly able to remove Alfwyn to a nunnery and no more is heard from her, and Edward became direct ruler of Mercia, and Mercian autonomy was dead forever. It is impossible to know if Athelflaed had worked actively for Mercian independence. On the one hand, she very clearly stands against her brother on Athelred's death. It is possible that she had Elfwyn accepted by the Mercian lords as her successor before she died. And she built Gloucester as a new capital of Mercia, a new symbol of her personal and Mercian power. And indeed she was buried at the new church, alongside her husband. But on the other hand, Athelflaed clearly worked tirelessly with Edward, her brother, to fight against the Danes. Actually, it's a rather impressive relationship. How easy it would have been for the two to have squabbled over the body of Mercia and fallen out, leaving the Danes free to carry on. But they continued to work effectively together. Also, Edward's first son, Athelstan, was sent to Athelflaed to be looked after and was brought up there. It again speaks of collaboration rather than conflict. So in this scenario, Elfwyn could very easily have been a pawn of the Mercian Ealdorman and Thanes, eager to retain their independence from Wessex. But either way, it was not to be. Elfwyn and Mercia were not strong enough to resist Edward and the West Saxons, and in 919, the long history of an independent Mercia finally and conclusively came to an end. Edward the Elder also received the admission of the Welsh princes as well at the same time. It's not clear exactly why this is, but it may have had something to do with the pressure on them from the Norse in Ireland. 
But anyway, that is, I think, enough for this week. I will leave you with the death of Athelflaed, one of the most remarkable and attractive figures of Anglo-Saxon history, one of those stories about which we'd just love to know more. Next episode, we'll get to the end of Edward's reign and cover one of England's most successful kings, Athelstan. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. (laughs) 